Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2009 Tanner Lectures on Human Values, presented by President Richard C. Levin and Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, feature two lectures by composer John Adams. In this second lecture, Adams speaks on Dr. Atomic and his gadget, composing the American mythology. We looked yesterday uh, about uh, at the Faust myth and about how Adrian Leverkund, Thomas Mann's uh, fictional composer, made a pact with the devil that culminated in his being cursed with sterility, with a cold objectivism and obsession with order that led to barbarism in the society around him, Germany of the 1930s, and for himself, a descent into madness. Today, I want to focus on how signal events in a nation's history can rise to the mythic level, and how and why I regard these myths as a proper hunting ground for uh, musical and dramatic treatment. Thomas Mann's theme in Dr. Faust is, is just as much about society as it is about art. Ideas of order are common to both artists and to social philosophers. Life seems to balance precariously on the delicate fulcrum between chaos and control, between too much liberty and too much order. One of the lures of Dr. Faustus is that it is so eloquently, uh, that it so eloquently draws an analogy between designing a work of art and designing a free but functioning society. Despite the extensive references to objectivity in a work of art, the final tally by the book's end seems strongly to suggest that absolute music, just as absolute order in social relations, simply doesn't exist. That its social setting, that is music social setting, is much too strong an influencing factor to be denied, and that likewise the compulsion to order and control in society can only lead to fascism and catastrophe on a grand scale. Like Thomas Mann, I'm drawn also to the relationship of art and society. And I'm also an artist who very much, like in the manner of Thomas Mann, grants full license to my instinct for parody when conceiving and executing a work of art. I'm, I'm frequently puzzled and not a little annoyed by hearing myself referred to in the media as a political composer. My operas are, you may already know, uh, ripped from the headlines. In fact, if you Google the noxious term docu-opera, uh, you'll find the first result will re refers to something called Nixon in China. Uh, another Google result will give you uh, a, com a comparison of the term docu-opera to its historical predecessors, concluding that operas like Nixon in China and the death of Klinghoffer have been around long enough for the term to be considered a value-neutral descriptor of a subgenre, like opera buffa or verismo opera. The reason for my puzzlement is because I consider the themes that I choose, global politics and social revolution or international terrorism or the creation of the atomic bomb, not simply mere news, but rather human events that have become mythology. They comprise a constellation of communally shared perceptions and responses in much the same way that the mythological lore 
the sagas and fairy tales and epics and ritual dramas of pre-industrialized societies were a symbolic expression of the collective experience of a tribe, a city-state, or a nation. The great student of mythology, Joseph Campbell, wrote, wherever the poetry of myth is interpreted as biography or history or science, it is killed. The living images become only remote facts of a distant time or place. Furthermore, it is never difficult to demonstrate that as science and history, mythology is absurd. Well, I actually take a different tack on mythology than Joseph Campbell, especially when it comes to our contemporary myths, although I concede that I have to stretch the classical definition a bit. Biography, history, and science have come to constitute our own myths, whether they are people, such as Lindbergh or Gandhi or Babe Ruth or Michael Jackson, or events, Pearl Harbor, the moon landing, the JFK assassination, 9-11, and so on. The OED's first definition of myth is a purely fictitious narrative, usually involving supernatural persons, actions, or events, and embodying some popular idea concerning natural or historical phenomenon. Legend, according to the OED, implies a nucleus of fact, and perhaps what I'm doing might be closer to that, but I use the term myth in the sense of a narrative that, although based on real people and real events, has been taken up in the collective unconscious of a society to the point where its truth content takes second place to its symbolic power. Andy Warhol understood the immense psychological grip that iconic images have for us. The glamorous smile of Marilyn Monroe, Jackie Kennedy in mourning, Elvis with a six-shooter, the electric chair, and so on. Many of these images, the moment we see them, launch narratives in our minds. And true to the OED's definition of a myth, they embody some popular idea concerning natural or historical phenomena. I think the supernatural element is essential to what we regard as myth. It's not a stretch of the imagination to think how the media, particularly the electronic media, supernaturalizes events, amplifying and distorting certain elements while diminishing or even suppressing others, forming what Foucault called the dominant discourse. In his classic book written in 1977, Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television, Jerry Mander acknowledged the subversive power of the mass media to distort and massage historical facts and images for both commercial and political purposes. Of his own experience as an advertising executive, Mander wrote, I came to the conclusion that like other modern technologies which now surround our lives, advertising, television, and most mass media predetermine their own ultimate use and effect. In the end, I became horrified by them as I observed the aberrations which they inevitably create in the world. Manders is not a position, a neutral position, obviously, but what he points to is the way in which the manipulation of events by the news media, by advertising or through the organs of popular culture, supernaturalizes them. When these events or personalities 
saturate the public consciousness or unconscious, they become totemic. They become emblematic. And some, no matter how tawdry or cynically manipulated they may be, nonetheless rise to the status of myth. I've written in some detail in the book that uh, Maria mentioned, Hallelujah Junction, about how the stage director, Peter Sellers, in 1983 came to me and proposed the idea of an opera that would be called Nixon in China, an opera about the epical meeting between Mao Zedong and Richard Nixon in 1972, an event that shocked our country with its bold, unexpected display of global realpolitik. At the moment, curiously enough, I, I myself was deeply involved in reading about mythology. And when Peter and I first began to talk about doing this opera, I happened to be in the middle of composing a film score for a documentary about another student of mythology, Carl Gustav Jung. I'd even journeyed to Bollingen, Switzerland to visit the small stone house that Jung, in his old age, had built and the walls of which he had covered with his own strange paintings of dream archetypes. At that point, I could only think of a myth as something archaic, drawn from the dim past of human experience. The image of Mao and Nixon shaking hands while the whole world watched on television seemed the furthest thing imaginable to me for what I construed as mythology. It took me some time to realize that we as citizens of the electronic age are, whether we are aware of it or not, saturated with myth. And the Nixon-Mao story is just one of the more piquant examples of how an event first reaches us via the medium of news, already heavily manipulated and filtered, and then through incessant replay and of images and sound bites and nuggets of received wisdom, it becomes supernaturalized and finally ascends to the status of myth. September 11th is also a classic case in point. I don't think many would be hard put to acknowledge that the profound effect of those attacks, that effect that had on our collective feeling as a country, was due to the nature of the imagery that we viewed over and over in the succeeding weeks and months. In a sense, uh, they were sort of darkly glamor glamorous. Um, if the same number of people, 3,000 uh, had, had died in a terrorist attack in a, let's say, a one-story warehouse somewhere in New Jersey. I don't think that uh, the totemic power of, uh, of that event would have, have invaded the public consciousness. So it was a combination of the, of the, uh, the, the event itself and, and the images that it portrayed that, that uh, caught our attention the stunning camera shots on the burning buildings and the imponderably potent symbolism of their collapse. These images were replayed so often in the media that they, they formed a kind of ritualistic reenactment, certainly turning that event into a myth. In this case, what began as news then became entertainment, entertainment of a very morbid variety but entert entertainment nonetheless. And from there on, its uses became infinitely darker. As anyone who's viewed the Leni Riefenstahl film of the 1934 Nuremberg Congress, Triumph of the Will, knows, a striking image, ritually repeated, takes on a mythic power 
that can contain any number of subversive narratives, when disseminated on a grand scale, those manipulations of narratives can have devastating results. When, when I finally gave Nixon and Mao some serious thought, I realized that the story was full to the brim with mythology of, of contemporary life. There was, for instance, the theme of two clashing views on how human life might be lived. One of those was the capitalist, the market-driven model in which a monetary value is placed on every object and nearly every human act. The other was the communist model in which a universal collective dictates from an arbitrary position of power with the stated goal that no person anywhere should go hungry or wanting, nor should he or she accrue a surfeit of goods or comfort at the expense of others. Nixon and China also provided models of personal power, presidential vanitas and the kinds of self-created historic narratives that people in power usually craft for themselves, personae, that help sell their particular message. Both Mao and Nixon had made themselves grandiose cartoons that our librettist Alice Goodman took great pleasure in deflating. The Long March, the Vietnam War, the Boxer Rebellion, Confucius, George Washington, Chiang Kai-shek, the Great Wall of China, and Henry Kissinger's Love Life all came together in a cluster of, what should I call them, signifiers? If not signifiers, at least heavily freighted symbols that provided background, middle ground, and foreground for an opera. Alice's libretto, drawn from sources as vast and varied as Chairman Mao's Red Book, Kissinger's The White House Years, Communist, China, uh, Communist Chinese propaganda magazines, Reader's Digest, Time, Newsweek, Confucius, and video archives from the major TV networks. All of this weaves together history, both global and intimate, with acute psychological sketches of each of the characters, Madame Mao, Pat, Zhou Enlai, Kissinger himself, and of course, Nixon and Mao. For me as a composer, Alice Goodman's treatment helped to raise each of these characters to his or her own mythic level. Nixon is the presidential everyman, American version. He's a mixture of personal vanitas, political cunning. He is both a utopian dreamer and a serial paranoid. In the first act of Nixon in China, after an opening chorus sung by scores of Chinese soldiers, we hear the rumble of Air Force One as it circles the airport in Peking and lands on the runway. The door of the plane opens and the president emerges, giving the classic politician's wave to the assembled multitude, and then descending the ramp onto the tarmac, where he is greeted first by Premier Zhou Enlai and then by other Communist Party officials. After a little courteous chit-chat, your flight was smooth, I hope, it said, oh yes, etc., etc. Nixon, followed by, at a discreet distance by the First Lady, dressed in her ritual fire engine red overcoat, and by Secretary of State Kissinger, greets a long line of identically clad Communist Party officials. As he shakes each hand, he stares straight into the television cameras. And this is what he sings. News has a kind of mystery. 
When I shook hands with Joe and Lai on this bare field outside Peking just now, the whole world was listening. Though we spoke quietly, the eyes and ears of history caught every gesture and every word, transforming us as we transfixed made history. On our flight over from Shanghai, the countryside looked drab and gray. Bruegel, Pat said. We came in peace for all mankind, I said. And I was put in mind of our Apollo astronauts, simply achieving a great human dream. We live in an unsettled time. Who are our enemies? Who are our friends? The Eastern Hemisphere beckoned to us, and we have flown east of the sun, west of the moon, across an ocean of distrust, filled with the bodies of our lost, the Earth's sea of tranquility. It's prime time in the USA. It's yesterday night. They watch us now. The three main networks' colors glow, livid through drapes out onto the lawn. Dishes are washed and homework done. The dog and grandma fall asleep. A car roars past, playing loud pop is gone. As I look down the road, I know America is good at heart. An old cold warrior piloting towards an unknown shore through shoals. The rats begin to chew the sheets. There's murmuring below. Now there's ingratitude. My hand is steady as a rock. A sound like morning dove reaches my ears. Nobody is a friend of ours. The nation's heartland skips a beat as our hand shields the spinning globe from the flamethrowers of the mob. We must press on. There's a wealth of reference and symbols in this one short text by Alice Goodman, all written, by the way, in uh, heroic couplets. News has a kind of mystery it starts. Right from the start, Nixon is acknowledging the brutal capriciousness of that strange and imponderable entity in, which, in our lives that we call the news. No one could testify more intimately to the jarring vicissitudes of making news than Nixon, and no one had quite the scars to show for a lifetime of trying to manipulate the beast. And this was still a year before Watergate. As he shakes hands, he is intensely aware of his symbol-making gestures. Television, the eyes and ears of history, are catching every, is catching every gesture and every word. It is he who's making history. Nixon had clearly left his copy of Tolstoy back in Washington. Then the shift to the personal. On our flight over from Shanghai, the countryside looked drab and gray. Bruegel, Pat said. This is actually, in fact, a quote from Nixon's memoir, that Mrs. Nixon did make this comparison to her husband as they were flying from Shanghai to, uh, to Peking. But then imagine a husband-wife conversing like this. She says, it's sort of like Bruegel, isn't it, out there? His response, Pat, we came in peace for all mankind. <laughs> it reminds me, uh, when I was doing the research on it, I, I found a copy of a letter that, that uh, Nixon had written to his daughter, Pat, on her wedding day. And, you know, it was a very affectionate letter, two pages of, you know, his memories of her, uh, typed on White House uh, stationery, and then at the end it, it said, 
Sincerely yours, Richard M. Mixon. <laughs> <laughs> then follows a beautiful chain of imagery that touches on so much in so few words. We live in an unsettled time. When did we ever not live in an unsettled time? But what politician would never pass up that phrase? Who are our enemies? Who are our friends? The Eastern Hemisphere beckoned to us, and we have flown east of the sun and west of the moon, a reference to a popular ballad from the 1930s, just the time when the Nixons would have met and fallen in love. Incidentally, my, uh, for musicologists here in the audience, uh, Wikipedia, my, my flawless source of facts, uh, says that east of the sun and west of the moon was composed by one Brooks Bowman, uh, an undergraduate member of Princeton University's class of 1936 for that university's production of uh, the Princeton Triangle Club's Stags at Bay. We'll pass that over to Susan McClary for analysis. Nixon continues with these, uh, with these melancholy images. We have flown east of the west, excuse me, we have flown east of the sun, west of the moon, across an ocean of distrust filled with the bodies of our loss, the earth sea of tranquility. The ocean of distrust separate, separates particularly the insular conservative Americans from what was regarded for decades as the red menace of communist China. That ocean is filled with bodies of American soldiers and sailors who had died in World War II in the same Pacific theater that Nixon himself participated as a serviceman. A watery graveyard, it is the Earth's sea of tranquility, but it was also the moon's sea of tranquility where less than three years before Nixon set foot in China, Apollo 11 had brought the first man, an American with a name straight, straight out of central casting, Neil Armstrong, to be the first human to set foot there. It's prime time in the USA. It's yesterday night. The global village is shrinking. and Nixon thinks he's the new Vasco da Gama of the electronic age. And now that Spielbergian vision. The lights of the millions of American televisions glow, livid through drapes out onto the lawn. Dishes are washed and homework done. The dog and grandma fall asleep. A car roars past playing loud pop is gone. The middle American idol is momentarily interrupted by loud pop. We remember Nixon railing against the young punks who protested the war, who took drugs, who had promiscuous sex, or even worse, who voted for someone other than him. It all comes back in a flash, and then, like the car roaring past in the night, it's suddenly gone. As Nixon looks down the road, such perfect middle, middle American language, I look down the road. He knows America is good at heart. He is an old, cold warrior, piloting the ship of state through troubled waters. Why don't we listen to this a little bit? Uh, this is a recording that... Um, of the original cast production, it's already this recording is already 22 years old, but uh, I'm very fond of it. This is uh, James Madalena singing uh, the role of um, of uh, Nixon. You'll hear first just that little brief exchange with Joe and Lai, which is sung by Sanford Sylvan. Your flight was smooth. I hope. Oh yes. 
How about a little louder? Yes, it was very pleasant. We stopped in Hawaii for a day and want to catch up on the time. It's easier that way. The Prime Minister knows about that. He is such a traveler. No, not I. But as a traveler, come home for good to China. One for whom all travel is a penance now. I am most proud to welcome you. I am most proud to welcome you. Unsettled time. 
Okay. Thank you. In the opera that followed, The Death of Kling Opera, mythology and historical verities get dangerously entangled. And in the afternoon, uh, excuse me, and in the aftermath of the world premiere and follow-up productions, I learned how deeply even the most intelligent and worldly of citizens can themselves become caught in the grip of conflicting mythologies. The Death of Klinghoffer was based on the 1985 hijacking of an Italian cruise ship, the Achille Laurel, by four young Palestinians in their assassination of one of the passengers, a retired 69-year-old handicapped Jewish-American, Leon Klinghoffer, who was confined to a wheelchair. I fully understand how referring to this violent and tragic event as mythology could easily insult anyone who believes that the truly serious events of today's world situation are not an appropriate arena for artists to be trolling for subject matter. Nonetheless, like it or not, terrorism has become a highly refined form of symbolic theater with its target audience and implicit and explicit message. Now, whether you agree or not with the historian Stanley Hoffman when he describes terrorism as the weapon of the weak in a classic conflict among states or within states, a terrorist act is more often than not predicted on, predicated on and justified by a mythic hypothesis, whether it be that martyrdom will be rewarded in paradise or that one nation is the great Satan, while another has a God-given claim to a land because scripture written 4,000 years ago said so. How else could we describe the reasoning that results in innocent individuals randomly chosen as victims that impels suicide bombers to give up their own lives in order to bring about the death of others? There is perhaps no more emphatic a single image to summon up the human predicament than that of the atomic bomb and its transfixing, mesmerizing mushroom cloud. My own early childhood, lived out in the 1950s and early 60s, was dominated by this single image. It was an image both darkly threatening, yet at the same time strangely irresistible. The bomb was science and human invention sprung instantaneously to the mythic level. Its powers of signification and symbolism were vast, capturing the imagination and lodging in the deepest regions of the world's communal psyche. Composing an opera that would have this history-altering object as its central theme was first proposed to me by Pamela Rosenberg, who at the time was the general director of the San Francisco Opera. Curiously enough, her proposal came in the form of the idea of creating an American Faust. Pamela felt that the central figure in bringing the bomb to existence, the physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, had some of the characteristics of the Faust character, particularly Goethe's version of him. Oppenheimer was gifted with one of the quickest intellects known to science. His extraordinarily agile powers of comprehension and discrimination allowed him to make intuitive leaps of understanding that left most of his physicist colleagues struggling to keep up. He was lucky to be born at a time when modern physics was coming into bloom, and thus he benefited enormously from the two generations that had immediately preceded him, 
the generation that included Einstein, Heisenberg, Planck, and Bohr. But Oppenheimer was more. He was a man of exceptional culture, a deep reader of poetry, particularly of the English metaphysical poets, of Charles Baudelaire, and of the Bhagavad Gita, which, irritatingly enough, he read in the original Sanskrit. He was the sort of guy I think we used to want to take behind the school and beat up. Um, <clears throat> he came from a wealthy family of secular Jews. His brother Frank was also an accomplished physicist, a family that owned a painting by Van Gogh and who listened only to classical music. Anyone who knows about Oppenheimer, and recently he's become one of the most poured over and minutely chronicled public figures in recent American history, knows the story of how Oppenheimer had tenuous associations during the late 1930s and early 40s with left-wing politics. His wife Kitty had been previously married to an American Communist, Party marry, uh, American Communist Party union organizer, and his brother Frank was at one point a Communist Party member. After the war, Oppenheimer became immensely famous. His picture was on the cover of Life magazine, Time magazine, he was a star. But ultimately, he was brought down by jealous political rivalry in Washington. He was publicly humiliated, and his patriotism was questioned. And in a sense, his public career was destroyed. Indeed, there were enough looming parallels between Faust and Oppenheimer to suggest the latter as a subject for an American Faust opera. Certainly, there was the paradox of how this hugely brilliant, endowed, and well-born man, wealthy, charismatic, cultured, and intellectual nonpareil, would be the person who would shepherd the creation of the world's first nuclear bomb. But the more I read about Oppenheimer and the situation facing the United States at the worst point during World War II, the less I thought it reasonable to draw a parallel between Oppenheimer himself and Faust, at, at least on a personal level. For one not to act in the face of the threat of Nazism at that time would have required one to be a complete pacifist and willing to accept with resignation the inevitability of an unknowably long dark night of the soul had the Nazis won. The presumed threat of a German atomic bomb was what prompted the Manhattan Project. And it is one of the supreme ironies of Nazi racism that a significant number of the great minds who were instrumental in creating the American bomb were emigre Jews. The hundred or more brilliant young physicists, chemists, engineers, and mathematicians who assembled on that high mesa in Los Alamos, New Mexico, considered themselves not at all making a pact with the devil, but rather completely devoted to winning a war against tyranny. Or as Robert Wilson, one of the youngest and most idealistic of the physicists and a protege of Oppenheimer, said, he felt like they were going out to save civilization. Nonetheless, the mythic potential for this story was irresistible to me. The bomb was the nexus of so many crucial themes that lay at the center of the human condition, 
not the least of which was the marriage of scientific knowledge and the technology of destruction. Here the Faust myth seemed to have resonance. resonance. One more time. Here the Faust myth seemed to have resonance. Peter Sellers, who fashioned the libretto out of existing sources, made this paradox the central crisis of the story. The moment on that July morning of 1945 when the first plutonium sphere went supercritical and detonated, releasing previously unimaginable amounts of energy, the relationship between the human species to the planet irrevocably changed. The bomb was living proof that human intelligence now had within its reach the potential to destroy its own nest. This was a seismic event in human consciousness, and the wealth of literature, both pulp and serious, of, of science fiction films and other chilling and apocalyptic art that emerged during the following decade acknowledged how quickly the atomic bomb had ascended to the realm of myth. Probably the single most controversial thing about Dr. Atomic as a work of music theater was its unusual libretto. Peter Sellers, realizing that the available ar archival material on Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project was extensive and in itself told a compelling and dramatic story, crafted the libretto from original sources. These included quotes from the scientists themselves, from the military people who had been involved, and from their memoirs, from letters, and from contemporary accounts. So when the physicist Edward Teller first begins to sing, we actually hear his own words. He says, First of all, let me say that I have no hope of clearing my conscience. The things we are working on are so terrible that no amount of protesting or fiddling with politics will save our souls. And that is a quote from Teller's memoirs written decades later. In this same opening scene of Dr. Tomic, Teller reads a letter from the physicist Leo Szilard that urged the scientists involved in the making of the bomb to take a public moral stance about how it should be used in warfare. I don't know how many of you uh, in the room have read uh, Richard Rhodes' book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb. It's, a, it's an ex extraordinary account. Uh, it's not just about the, uh, the drama of, of the bomb in Hiroshima, but it's also a, a, a immensely illuminating account of the history of physics uh, through the uh, 20th century. By the summer of 1945, the Germans, uh, whom we had believed were developing their own atomic bomb, had already surrendered. So now it was becoming clear to the scientists at Los Alamos that their weapon would now be used on Japanese cities. And Szilard was one of a handful of them he was not at Los Alamos, but he was certainly involved in, uh, in uh, the gathering together of all these uh, brilliant scientists. And he was one of a handful of them who felt compelled to protest what would surely be a massacre of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of civilians at a point when the end of the Pacific War seemed only a matter of time. Again, Peter Sellers' libretto 
uses that very letter that Szilard sent to Teller, hoping to be uh, circulated among the young scientists at Los Alamos. And this is what the letter says, and this is what I set. Many of us are inclined to say that individual Germans share the guilt for acts which Germany committed during the war because they did not raise their voices in protest against those acts. Their defense that their protest would have been to no avail hardly seems acceptable, even though these Germans could not have protested without running risks to life and liberty. We scientists working on atomic power are in a position to raise our voices without such risks, even though we might incur the displeasure of those who are present in charge. The people of the United States are unaware of the choice we face, and this only increases our responsibility in the matter. We alone who have worked on atomic power, we alone are in a position to declare our stand. The libretto is thus constructed, ingeniously interweaving quotes from an astonishing number of sources, including a 1945 book called Atomic Energy for Military Purposes that provides the text for the opening chorus for the opera, magazines and popular literature from the 50s and 60s, books with titles like Target Hiroshima, published by the Naval Institute Press, interviews, transcripts with scientists who were involved that were generously uh, provided for us to use by the documentary filmmaker John Else. And there's also a, a chilling moment in Act One when Oppenheimer sings words that come directly from the recently uh, declassified transcript of the uh, official target committee in Washington, D.C., one which Oppenheimer attended when the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were singled out for bombing. This had me extending my, my craft of uh, text setting by having to find a musical expression for lines such as this, which are sung by Oppenheimer. The Secretary of War concludes that we cannot give the Japanese any warning, that we should seek to make a profound psychological impression on as many inhabitants as possible. I guess killing them makes a profound psychological impression. Dr. Conant suggests a vital war plant as the most desirable target, employing a large number of workers' houses and closely surrounded by factories. But transcripts and quotes would be themselves a tedious evening in the theater and rob the opera of its potential for reaching the sublime. And this is why the Dr. Atomic libretto combines these archival sources with poetry, and not just any poetry, but great poetry. Fortunately, in the case of Oppenheimer, this was an entirely appropriate inclusion because Oppenheimer was a widely literate reader of poetry. And during his undergraduate years at Harvard, he had often tried his hand at composing poems in a variety of musical forms. His tastes, as I've already mentioned, ranged over many languages and many historical periods. So as the drama uh, proceeds, I have Oppenheimer sing texts by some of his beloved favorites, such as Baudelaire, John Donne, and the Bhagavad Gita. One other poet 
the American Muriel Rukeyser, a contemporary of Oppenheimer, although probably not known to him, provided much of the texts for the character of Kitty Oppenheimer, his wife. Rukeyser, whose poetry reflected her passionate commitment to social justice, wove science and politics into her visionary lyrics, and the profoundly feminist tone of her voice provides a critical counterweight to the male-dominated society of scientists and military personnel at Los Alamos. Having composed five operas and having lived in that world off and on for the past 25 years, I can attest to the fact that opera is blood sport. And no more emphatic proof of that exists than the torrent of criticism that greeted Dr. Atomic's unusual libretto, especially after it had a run of seven performances at the Metropolitan Opera. Opera aficionados were not prepared for a libretto that moved back and forth from the banal rhythms of spoken language, much of it about physics and engineering, to the dense, evocative, and elusive world of great poetry. A typical response, one of dozens that complained about the perceived lack of dramatic tension resulting from a libretto made in this manner, read like this. If as a composer I were presented with this libretto, I'd have torn it to shreds. Nothing is shaped, nothing develops, so there's nothing to compose into. For all its moment-to-moment -moment sparkle and range, the score functions in very limited ways, either as extended scare tremolandi for the foreboding prose scenes, or as tastefully chosen frames for Sellers' gallery of poetic sources, opalescent neo-impressionism for Baudelaire, severe D minor, and scotch snaps in the vocal line for John Donne, rite of spring primitivism for Bhagavad Gita, and so on and so on. Ouch. Of course, I never read my reviews. <laughs> I understand the critical point of view here, and I could even sympathize with the irritation of a viewer who uh, came to the theater looking for a tightly constructed dramatic arch where characters are introduced, fleshed out with past histories, and where their actions lead to a carefully modulated dramatic climax. I think there's an opera that does that, but I'm not sure. Complaints were made especially about the fact that when Oppenheimer or his wife Kitty or even the chorus sang passages of poetry, the narrative motion stopped dead in its tracks, and a naturalistic interchange among the characters gave way to a long, dreamlike monologue. But that's a criticism coming from what I'd have to call the Verismo camp, requiring the kind of approach to stagecraft we might expect from a Verdi or a Puccini or a Richard Strauss. Opera if we survey its very rich variety of form and conventions, is not just verismo, not just naturalistic theater set to music. One is only to look at the operas of Monteverdi or of Handel or Mozart to see how the aria functions so emphatically as pure poetical affect, as the moment when the character steps out of, the narr out of narrative time and lives in purely poetic time. All of my operas are tightly packed into short narrative timelines. Nixon in China is confined to three, the three days of the presidential, uh, that the presidential party spent in Peking, one day for each act. 
the action in the death of Klinghoffer is bracketed by the 50-odd hours of the hijacking. And the first two scenes of Dr. Atomic occur at Los Alamos at the end of June 1945 on a single day. And the entire remainder of the opera happens on a single night and early morning of July 16, 1945. There are two immediate dramatic crises that underlie both the music and the action of Dr. Atomic. One is the growing doubts and moral scruples among some of the younger scientists about the bomb's ultimate use on civilians and, the circulation, and their circulation of a petition by the younger physicists inspired by the letter that I read you from Szilard, which they naively thought would be signed by everyone and sent to President Truman an act that, as Oppenheimer cautioned them, could potentially be deemed treasonous. The other crisis, the more mundane one, is the weather. An unexpected torrential summer electrical storm has blown into the test site, just as the plutonium sphere has been winched up onto the tower from which it will be detonated. But the test must go on. Pressure from the White House is implacable. A test carried out under these weather conditions could blow lethal fallout back onto the entire party of scientists and military personnel. In the very late hours before, the dawn, um, before dawn, the storm blows over. Everyone is taking a much needed nap on the floor of the desert in the dark, waiting for the sun to come up and for the test to take place. The tension, so unbearable for weeks, is suddenly relaxed for a moment. Oppenheimer, for the first time in months, is alone with his thoughts. And he contemplates the looming figure of this plutonium sphere that, for the moment, has been covered in a canvas tent that looks like an eerie shroud. He sings a sonnet by perhaps his favorite poet, John Donne, Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. This is a poem filled with the keenest sense of loss, a loss of alienation from one's soul. Most of what comes before this moment has been anxious and volatile, the music often teetering on the edge of atonality. My decision to make a wild, affective leap here and set this John Donne sonnet as a kind of refracted chacon in D minor must have been an unconscious response on my part to the solemn language of the poem and to the noble gravitas of its rhythms. The familiar harmonic movement of the poem is, um, ah, the familiar harmonic movement uh, of my setting is a trope that we can all identify with. But by pla placing its internal harmonic rhythms in a sort of tonal hall of mirrors, by pushing them and pulling them and gently distorting their expected tensions and resolutions, the music seems, at least to me, both archaic and strangely familiar. Not unlike Thomas Mann's Faust, John Donne's narrator feels himself divorced from his god, captive, betrothed, to God's enemy. It is a poem of the most intense yearning for reunion with the Godhead, with wholesomeness. Unlike Faust, 
John Donne begs to be brought back into the fold, pleads that God might batter him, that he might knock him, untie that terrible knot, and set him free. So to end, uh, let's uh, watch and hear uh, my wonderful, wonderful Robert Oppenheimer, Gerald Finley, singing Batter My Heart uh, from Peter Sellers' production. This is a, a DVD made from uh, live performances at the Netherlands Opera, uh, which is uh, available on uh, commercial DVD. so good get some sleep I'll turn in myself I want to kiss Tchaikovsky, Bainbridge and Officer Bush up on that farm tower to prevent potential sabotage
Viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive or proves weak or untrue. Yet, dearly, I love you and would be loved fain. But have he drawn? You and throw me 
This lecture was presented in the fall of 2009 as part of the Tanner Lectures on Human Values. The Tanner Lectures are presented annually at select universities and were established by Obert Clark Tanner as means of contributing to the intellectual and moral life of mankind. John Adams spoke on October 29, 2009 at the Whitney Humanities Center.